Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Abual Samad from Navigant Research. And uh, Rebecca's not with us right now, but uh, later on, I will be uh, recording some stuff with her. Uh, it's actually Monday night right now. Uh, I'm going to be seeing her on Wednesday uh, at, uh, and where there's going to be a GM event where they're going to be making some big EV news. And um, after that, uh, we'll uh, sit down and record some stuff there, talking about what, what came out of that, and we'll add that on here. Well, that should be exciting. Are you excited? Uh, yeah, actually, I am. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that they, that they share with us some of the uh, some of the technical details of their new Dev three platform. Uh, as of as of right now, we haven't seen the news yet, uh, but there was a report out earlier today that um, they could be showing us as many as twelve different EVs that'll be coming over coming out over the next couple of years, and. Uh, uh, I my guess is that we will not be allowed to share all the specific details on those vehicles, or we probably won't even be able to show people what those vehicles look like, uh, because I you know I'm guessing that they will want to be trickling those out over you know every month or two over the next couple of years, uh, starting with the um, the Hummer EV pickup, which is due to be revealed publicly in May, uh, but uh, I think that they're probably going to be sharing with us a bunch of technical information about. Uh, about the batteries and the uh, the electrical system and and the whole electrical platform or electrical tool electric vehicle toolkit that they've developed for all these different vehicles and, and the one million foot pounds of torque it has or whatever <laughs> oh <laughs> tiny, come on tiny don't tiny exaggerate it was like... only eleven and a half thousand <laughs> foot pounds. <laughs> After gear reduction, uh, anyway. yeah, well, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so the the Bev three is that was under the Menlo. Uh, no, Menlo is based on the Bev 2, which is the Bolt platform. Oh, okay. So right. Bev 3 is this next generation uh, platform that is going to be under. And the thing is, from what, I've, from what I've heard so far, it's not actually a platform in the traditional sense that we think of it, you know, where, you know, it's a particular vehicle architecture. Rather, it's um, a set of EV components that they can use and mix and match and scale up and down for various vehicles. So for example, the uh, cruise origin is based on the Bev three toolkit. Uh, and so is the Hummer EV, which are quite radically different vehicles. Yeah. Those seem like, the or, or we assume there will be radically different vehicles. We don't, we don't actually know yet about the Hummer. Cause that's true. I mean, if the Hummer comes out and it looks like the cruise origin, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that, would, right. that would not be good. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, we, the, the presumption is that the, the Hummer, for example, will continue to be a body on frame, you know, traditional type of pickup truck layout, but with, you know, stuffed with batteries in between those frame rails and motors at either end. Um, you know, whereas the, the cruise, you know, is a unibody design, you know, rear wheel drive, um, you know, that also has batteries underneath. So, uh, you know, I think what we're, what we're talking about for Bev three is this, um, 
electrical architecture and set of uh, battery, battery management, motors, power electronics. Uh, you know, one of the, the rumors that has come out um, is that uh, this it'll be able to charge to 90% in 10 minutes, uh, which, you know, presuming, you know, if you're assuming a 65 kilowatt hour battery pack, uh, like similar to what's in the Bolt today, um, you know, if it was charging at 350 kilowatts, you could do that 90% in 10 minutes. I've, I've done the math and it, it actually works out. So presumably it'll support 350 kilowatt charging and all kinds of other stuff. We'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And it's, it's always those, those claims, right? Like, yes, we can, we can charge the battery this much, this fast. And then you're like, okay, that's, that's either like awesome new battery technology and charging technology, or it's a small battery. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm guessing in this case, it's a combination of a number of factors. Yes, uh, I mean, 65 is not that tiny. The 65 yeah. is fine. No, I mean, that's what's in the Bolt today. And that's, you know, that's got 259 mile range. Yeah. That, which is, you know, again, plenty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so good. Well, we'll tack that on to the rest of this show. Uh, but while we're already rolling, let's talk about the cars that we're rolling in. And so last week I had the Infinity QX30. Uh, no, QX50, I'm sorry, QX50 Edition 30. And I forgot to mention that it was the Edition 30 because the name just became a mouthful. But they're they're celebrating their 30th year in the U.S. market. Uh, and so this Or week, in any market for that yeah, matter. Well, yeah. And uh, this week you've got the Q30. The Q50. Q50. Damn it. Why do I keep there saying There is no 30? Q30. Right. Yeah, I don't know why I said 30. Anyway. Yeah, it's the Q50 edition 30. Actually, re- reading off the, the Monroni, it's 2020 Infinity Q50 3.0T edition 30. That sounds like a decent enough car. Like that's So that's oh. the replacement for the beloved, I say beloved because I I liked it, uh, the G3537, right? Like Right. I mean, you know, it's this form of the vehicle has been around for several years already. Um, and, you know. I think was it you or Rebecca recently that had the Q60, which is the coupe version of this. Uh, she had it. I've had okay. the Q60 before, and it's that's a lovely car to look at and to sit in. It kind of sucks to drive. Like when they went to the Qs, um, I, like this next generation off the the FM platform, uh, they they lost all their personality, all their soul. And I, I mean, I don't know if that's how you feel about it, but that's how I feel about it. I, I wouldn't say they lost all of it, but they lost a, a fair bit of it. You know, I mean, it's still a very nice car to drive. It is. You know, yeah. It's, it's not, you know, uh, you know, it's not like, you know, classic three series, you know, like a, like an E36 generation three series to drive, but it's, it's a lovely car to drive and, you know, great place to spend time. Um, you know, it, you know, I, I really like the way it looks. Uh, I think yeah. the design, the styling is really good. Um, this particular one has the twin turbo three liter V six, three, uh, the 300 horsepower version, not the, uh, not the 400 horsepower version that's, uh, available also in the Q 50, but not in the edition 30, um, uh, rear wheel drive, seven speed automatic. Um, the, the seats in this one, I thought were very nice, very comfortable, very supportive. Uh, one thing that I, that was kind of unusual, you know, given that, you know, this is a, a special, you know, limited edition version. Um, it doesn't, ha- didn't have uh, paddle shifters, which, you know, for a modern, you know, somewhat sports sedan is, is kind of un- unusual. 
but um you well you know, know back in 1990 they didn't have paddle shifters either right that's true that, that is very true they did not have paddle shifters uh, but they also didn't have anything quite like the Q50 then. You know, you had That's true, back, yeah. back in, in 1990 when they launched in, the Infinity brand, they had uh, just the, the Q45, you know, this, and this is before they named everything Q for Infinity. Right. You know, they had, the Q45 was their big, uh, their big sedan, which was uh, similar in, in size and, and arguably in shape to the, um, to the 7 Series of the time. Um, aside from the massive belt buckle emblem well, on the yeah, front but, of it, but it, it didn't have any grill, and that's like that's it true. Was, it was so beautiful those first couple of years. And you oh could yeah, get, like, a very fancy Clausenet badge up there, and it had that weird advertising campaign that nobody oh, boy, liked. Boy, was that weird! I remember, <laughs> like, the, no. just. Pictures Nobody of, knew what the heck they were trying to sell. Yeah. Um, th- that's if you wanted to like study 80s advertising of just like, y- you know, I, I, I don't even know what to say. Like it, it, there because there's a few examples of it. But like I think that infinity stuff sort of leads directly to um, General Motors hiring people from like Procter and Gamble to sell Cadillacs. And that also didn't work. Yeah. Um, but it's just a lot of weirdness and now it just looks so dated, but, uh, man, that, that first Q45 was so, I don't know. It left a mark yeah. <laughs> on, on my psyche and it, you know, compared to the, the LS 400, which also came out, I think came out in 89. Uh, they both came out within a few months of each other. They, yeah. Both brands actually launched, uh, publicly launched at the 1989 Detroit auto show. The, the first, the first year it was, became the North American International Auto Show. Both brands debut had their world debut there, and they came out within a you know they launched within a few months of each other. You know, in late '89, early 1990. Yeah, I mean that that one-two punch. You know, the LS 400 just put everybody on notice. Like this car is very good, and I think it started at like under forty thousand dollars, which for then was yeah you know. A lot of money, and it was not a lot of money for a lot of car. And the but the the LS, the knock on it was always it was sort of floaty and you know really quiet, really well done. But not. it was it was in no way, shape, or form sporty. Yeah, yeah but was, the Q was. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they they had two. They had totally different personalities to them in those days. Yeah, and, um, and what else did Infinity have? Did they have the M30 when they launched? Uh, no, the M30 came. Uh, oh yeah. The, sorry, the M30 was the the first one. They they had the coupe, uh, the M30 coupe, which was based on the the Skyline. Wait, they had um, a coupe version of that. I yeah. remember the M30 with the the convertible. With uh, well, it came that came later. Okay. That came a couple of years later. Um, so initially there was the coupe, um, and then that that got uh, uh, supplemented by the convertible, and then there was also the uh, I think it was the G20, you know, which was. A oh, smaller right. front wheel drive sedan, which is basically based on the Altima of the time um, or, or whatever. I think that, that might have actually been before they got the Altima it name. Was before the Altima, the G20. I remember the G, the first G20 was a slick car, too. I remember that. I forget yeah. what Nissan it was because that, that's their thing. Like they brought them over as Infinities, but they were all like other market Nissans. Right. And well, the same was true of, well, most same of was true Lexus. for the Lexus ES. You yeah, know, the the ES was basically a Camry. Um, the the LS was it was definitely unique, and and as was the Q forty five. But this is a totally different Q, 
and it's yeah sorry for the history lesson we're just geeks uh, so yeah so, but, but um one thing about this q uh 50 does it have steer by wire it does have the same steer by wire that was on the q60 so is that weird or spooky i couldn't tell whether and i didn't look it up yet but the so the qx50 i had i assumed it had steer by wire if it doesn't it has crappy terrible numb steering but i found it really spooky in the rain I think it's just crappy, terrible numb steering on the, I, the QX. I think the Q50 and the Q60 are the only ones that have this steer-by-wire system, as far as I know. I just couldn't tell what was going on at all with the tires, with the front tires. The, yeah, the, no, this, the this, one's, this one's definitely better than that. You know, it's still, you know, it's it's not great, but it's not bad. Um, you know, especially if you put it in sport mode. Um you know, I mean, there it's all whatever feedback you have is very much simulated, you know, yeah. because there's no direct connection. Uh, but they they actually do a pretty reasonable job of simulating that feedback. And, you know, it you've got, um, you know, various other um, features on this, you know, the driver assist features. One thing that was interesting that was missing from this, especially in light of the fact that Infinity was the first brand that I can recall that had lane departure warning. Um, and this was back in, I remember reviewing at Autoblog, the, uh, was it the IX30? Um, you know, it was the, the previous, before, before the, the original version of the predecessor of the QX50. Oh, the EX35. Yeah, was it the EX? Yeah. Okay. Ex thirty five. That's right. They, see, they've screwed up with the numbers all, all, so much. Like, all, well, all all these alphanumeric names are just idiotic, and I'm <laughs> glad that that at least some brands have decided to abandon them. You know, this is ridiculous. What at they any really rate, should do is just to just uh, you know give us well, the platform names. Yeah. At, at any rate, <laughs> the ex was the first one that had lane departure warning on there, and at that time, because it still had a hydraulic steering assist. To do, um, uh, you know, the lane departure prevention, you know, to, to do lane keeping assist, they actually used the brakes to, um, you know, did a little bit of braking on one side or the other on the on the rear axle, uh, you know, in order to put a little bit of torque on the vehicle, um, you know. So if you started to drift out of the lane, it would it would put a little bit of steering on on the opposite side, yeah, uh, rear yep. wheel to yep. get it back into the lane. Uh, the Q the Q fifty didn't have doesn't offer this. You, you don't have lane keeping assist on here, which I thought was a little unusual because uh, huh. it's got adaptive cruise control um, and uh, uh, hill start assist and and various other things, but no no lane departure or lane keeping system. Um, and another thing that I noticed about this vehicle, uh, which I forgot to mention last week when I was talking about the Versa, uh, is both of these, and I've noticed this on other Nissan vehicles, when you know it's full stop, full speed uh, adaptive cruise control. So when if you're in traffic and the car ahead of you comes to a complete stop, you'll, it'll bring you to a complete stop. But then once it stops, it releases the brakes. <laughs> yeah, that's not the so only. If you don't put it, your if you don't put your foot on the brake pedal, then you know after half a second, the car will start to creep forward again. Yeah, which. Every other car I've ever driven, every other vehicle I've ever driven that has full speed adaptive cruise control, once it brings the car to a stop, it holds the brakes on until you uh, apply the accelerator pedal again. Is it just like, because I'm trying to remember, um, do they have like a separate brake hold? 
button that you oh because i find that there, a lot of cars that break hold you have to arm it like every time you start the car and i'm assuming yes, that's on purpose it, it, it does it does have a, a break hold um and yes you know every car that's got that it's it's uh it you have to turn it back on again after an ignition cycle that's dumb yeah <laughs> it's a pain so in the it, it always defaults to to off on that but you know in this case here you know i wasn't using it and so yeah, you have to be careful of this. You know, if you're using adaptive cruise control and stop and go traffic, uh, after it stops, the car will release the brakes and it can start to creep forward again. So you have to watch out for that. The other thing that is unusual about um, this car and, and other Infinities is the infotainment system setup. I can't remember if the QX has this, but I know the Q60 has this dual screen yes. setup. It's not so, good. So the upper screen, you know, is normally used for navigation. And if you're using your phone, you know, Android Auto and CarPlay uh, screens are displayed in there. <laughs> and then the lower screen, you know, has various, you know, settings and controls and things like that. And you can input, you know, do search for points of interest, things like that in the lower screen. And it's it's an odd looking setup because the top screen is a matte screen. Yeah. And it's kind of sunken in a little bit, you know, so the bezel, there's a bezel around it and it's sunken in a little bit. Whereas the the screen just below it, like, you know, an inch and a half below it is glossy and flush. Yeah. It's, it's a very weird design choice. Like, I didn't understand why there's two screens. Like, why isn't there just one large screen not that i like it but it just makes more sense like why are you using my guess screens? my guess is you know that like the q50 you know has been around in the current generation has been around for about five years now and i think when they designed it they probably would have preferred to do a single large screen but there were no um screens that size the automotive grade screens that size that were readily available and okay. so they they went i mean that that would be the only reason i could think of why they would do it this way um you know obviously you know in um tesla had the uh the, the model s uh screen the, the 17 inch model s screen you know so they had a bigger screen prior to this one launching but you know as as we know um that is not an automotive grade screen that's an industrial screen that they sourced for that and it has problems, um, you know, with yellowing and, and uh, um, you know, other other issues over time. And a lot of owners have had to have their screens replaced. And if they're out of warranty, they're very expensive to replace. Yeah, they're about they're about twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars to replace. Um, so I think, you know, Infinity decided they wanted to go with automotive grade parts. Why they went with two different parts? I <laughs> to, you know, significantly different parts. I have no idea. Um, but, you know, and, and the other thing is, you know, the, the, the center console slopes up away from you. They're both touch screens. And so the upper screen is actually kind of a long reach, um, you know, and so you have to kind of lean forward a lot of times to hit it, to hit the touch targets on there. Um, fortunately, you know, they, it also has a center controller um, next to the, um, the shifter. And, you know, it's a rotary and, you know, jog controller. So you can, you can use that to navigate around that upper screen. 
And that yeah. one that one works on the upper screen only, but not on yeah, the lower. I was gonna screen. say it doesn't control everything. So how did you? That's what is that called? In touch? Um, in, in something or other? Yeah, Infinity in touch. Um, what did you think of it? I I have my own opinions. <laughs> it's not the best user interface, to put it mildly. It's not the worst. Um, you know, I would I would reserve that for. Uh, um, you know, some of the Lexus N2 or Lexus N form stuff. Um, but, uh, it's, it's definitely nowhere, you know, it's in the lower half of what's currently available. And, you know, once, you know, once I was done messing around with the, the stock infinity interface, you know, I just plugged in my phone and, and used Android <laughs> auto and Google maps to navigate. Right. It's enough of this nonsense. Yeah. It, it got, it got me where I needed to go. It's, um, it's not, you know, the, the, both screens were better than what you typically find, better quality than what you typically find on, on Nissan vehicles. Um, you know, particularly, you know, like the Altima and the, the, uh, Rogue and, and some of the other, uh, Nissan vehicles, you know, that, and, and the Leaf that I've complained about, uh, you know, with dim, low contrast screens. These are definitely better looking screens than that, but they're still not, you know, it's just not, not a great setup with the two screens that way. Yeah, and I'm, I'm assuming that we're just going to see more and more of that from from more companies. The screen ultimately is actually less expensive in the aggregate to replace all of those center stack controls, and it, it's it's often right. it's a lot and, more flexible too. You know, you can do yeah, a lot more. and 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 what we're going to now, you know, now that there are larger automotive screens, automotive grade screens available. You know, we're starting to see those coming to market, um, you know, and, and we'll see a bunch of those later this year. Uh, the new um, Chrysler FCA Uconnect uh, 5 system, you know, supports screens up to 12 and a half inches. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw one at the Chicago Auto Show uh, last time I put the video in the in the post. Um, that's not the ago, that's, that's not the Uconnect that's in the RAM, right? The because I just no had, this this is a new this is a new generation of it. Okay, because I just had a RAM a few weeks ago. Yeah, so that that one's based on the Uconnect four system. So this Uconnect five is actually running on Android Automotive. Well, yeah, um, and uh, you know it supports a bunch of different screen sizes, uh, including a twelve and a half inch um, landscape display, which is what was in the. Uh, the new Pacifica that uh, we were trying out at the Chicago auto okay. shop. Um, and so, you know, that one, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a pretty nice interface what they've, what, that they've done on that one. And then, you know, there's also Ford's uh, sync four, uh, which is coming out this, this fall and a bunch of new vehicles, uh, including the Mach-E and probably the F-150. And speaking of the F-150, saw. I saw, <laughs> I saw half a dozen of them on, running down I-94 the other day. Oh, that's awesome. We, we, there's been a, um, a shot floating around of the uh the interior too of the dash with the big screen. Yep. Um yeah, I I don't know. Like that, that so that you connect the the one that's actually that I tried in the RAM with the big screen, they they've taken a several steps backwards in terms of usability. It's it's not as easy to figure out as it had been. And in Nissan and Infinity too, like they always had uh, a pretty friendly system for years and now in touch i felt like it was uh not as responsive as it should be you know it, it's it, it makes you wait for stuff uh, i don't know if you found that but i i kind of got a little annoyed with it i was like come on 
don't don't put the screens in here and make them make me rely on them if it's not going to be snappy and i understand why it's not snappy but it's still like the the version that's in the q50 i didn't have any issues with responsiveness on that one uh so i'm not sure how different the one that i haven't driven the qx the qx50 yet so i'm not sure how that one compares but this one this one was fine i didn't have any issues with that it's just the the general user interface that was kind of a problem. It's a little jumbled, and yeah. I, yeah, and it looks like the, um, the Q50 uh, or the QX50 <laughs> has, uh, just has a single screen setup, if I'm not mistaken. I thought it had two. There were definitely like two. Oh no, you're right. There, yeah. uh, there it is. Yeah, there there are there are two screens. There's an upper screen and a lower screen. Yeah. And it looks like basically the same interface that's in the Q50. Yeah, they're both dumb. <laughs> I did the same thing. I plugged. Actually, no, I think I actually. Um, yeah, I know I had my phone plugged into that one because you could use the Nissan Nav with uh, CarPlay, I believe. And so for the last couple of weeks, I've had Fords, which don't allow you to do that. Yeah, and and the same was true on the Q50. Uh, you know, using Android Auto. Um, if you tap on the map button, it takes you to the stock embedded uh, nav system. Right. Which, I, I mean, I guess that's a it's a preference thing. Um, I'm sure that the nav on your phone probably has uh, more up-to-date maps and can often be quicker and depending on how they source their traffic information. Like, there's a lot of reasons to use your phone's uh, navigation app uh, versus the embedded nav. So. It'd be nice to just have that choice versus being forced to do one or the other. That's yeah. You know. All right. So, um, you know, the, the Q50 edition 30, uh, what came to, uh, just over 45 grand, uh, it was 45,320, including destination charges. Uh, so, you know, I mean, for, for that segment, it's not a bad price. It's a fairly decent value. Um, and you know, it's, it's a nice, very pleasant car to drive. You know, it's got decent performance. Um, you know, I think it it looks great. And, uh, you know, it's, I think, you know, it, it's worth taking a look at if you're looking for something in that, you know, that sort of entry premium midsize sedan segment, you know, that's got, you know, a relatively sporty feel to it, but, um, you know, isn't, isn't that hardcore, you know, and, and, you know, if you want something a little more hardcore, um, there is, there's another, uh, a version of the uh, the Q50, um, which I'm trying to remember what they what they call it now. Um, Isn't it red something or other? Yeah, the uh, <laughs> find it here. <laughs> it, <laughs> when you when you're is, surrounded by all these names, they just all kind of blend into each well, other. The, the sport, the red sport 400. Yeah, which ha, you know has another hundred horsepower. I think that's the uh, one I drove. Uh, the uh, that might have been the Q60, the coupe. I drove. I don't know. It was yeah. I've, I've driven the Q60 Red Sport, yeah. um, and uh, so this is the uh, you know they also have a sedan version of that. I think you know Infinity in terms of styling. I think they're really really good. The interiors are usually really well turned out, at least in the press cars. Uh, they do a good job making them nice and fancy and well equipped. And I I do really like their their design. Uh, their design team does a great job. Uh, the cars are distinctive, usually distinctive. Um, the fly in the ointment right now for me is just 
there's a G70. And yeah. I think the G70 just mops the floor with uh, the Q50. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, and the, you know, the, G, the, the Genesis G70, you know, you can get a manual transmission in there. You know, it's, it's really nimble. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, if you're looking for something with a more, uh, definitely a, a more sporting attitude, it's definitely the way to go. Yeah. And it has steering feet. <laughs> you can tell what's going on at the tires. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what happens when you actually connect the steering wheel mechanically to the, to the steering linkage. Yeah. I've been like sitting here trying to figure out like, okay, so if there's no actual physical connection, how would you, how would you do that? You could do it with like piezo transducers. So it actually picks up the vibration and then just, tra- you know, um, uses an actual. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all, you know, it's always going to be synthetic. Yeah. It's going to be simulated and it's never going to feel as good. Yeah. And then, so, and the reason for doing steer by wire is just the amount of real estate it frees up in the engine bay is significant. Yeah. I mean, not having to have that steering column go down there, you know, alongside the engine, you know, definitely makes packaging a lot easier. And, you know, it gives you the flexibility to do other things like, you know, uh, you know, automatic lane centering and, uh, you know, collision avoidance stuff that, for some reason, this card does not have. <laughs> was it just an option that it wasn't selected? Like, I'm, it can't no, not I, be available. Um, I, or maybe it I, isn't. It available. Might be, it, I, I don't think it is available on the Q50. That's crazy. Yeah, that, that's like those are selling points. Those are things people buy now. Um, oh well. Uh, well, I was also driving uh, something that's a little oddly expensive and under-equipped for its price. Um, I had the uh, 2020 Ford Ranger XLT FX4. Um, <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's another one of those mid-sized trucks that it it looks good, um, especially in this trim with it's got you know little white letter tires, and this one had the spray and bed liner, and it's it's ready to go, and it's definitely it's a trucky truck, so it it feels. Um, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to say it's, it's unrefined. It's not unrefined. It's actually pretty good mm. in terms of pickup trucks. A little unrefined. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, I do get a little car sick in it after a while, but I think that's mostly because this one smells like it's been smoked in. And I will, Ooh. I will say federal fellow auto journalists don't smoke in cars. If you do, you're a jerk. <laughs> like <laughs> it's just, it's the worst. Um, Cause everything absorbs it and you can tell. Um, it's, it does, it's not, smokers have this idea that like, they're going to chew peppermint gum and nobody will be able to figure it out. Like we we know, we know you smoke (laughs) and the cars pay for it, but off of my rant, um, (laughs) the XLT in this trim, it's like $41,000. It has the EcoBoost 2.3, the 10 speed automatic. It just, it doesn't feel like a $41,000 truck. You know, the interior materials aren't that great. The, um, the seats are still cloth and and at 41,000, like I just feel, and maybe this is, I'm starting to hit that threshold. Hard plastics everywhere. Yeah. It's just junky plastics. It's a great 30 to $35,000 truck. Uh, unless my perception of prices has been left in the dust in the last, I don't know, 
12 months. It just seems like all of a sudden these cars that don't measure up to the prices that they're, they're asking. And I realized that most Rangers don't. No, that's, that's actually absolutely, that's absolutely true. You know, I, I think that this is, this is actually becoming a real problem. Yeah. It's, it's not, I'm looking around the, the Ranger and the other problems with the Ranger are, you know, it gets okay fuel economy. It gets like 19 and a half with not really anything strenuous, um, which is pretty good. But, you know, an F-150 is going to probably get there with the V6, too. Like, I, it just depends on how you drive it, I suppose. And, and there's just so much more space in the larger truck. Um, it, well, and, and this, you know, this was the argument that Ford made when they discontinued the yeah. Ranger, you know, in North America. And they didn't, you know, they... At the time that they dropped the old Ranger here in North America, that thing was so they, old. <laughs> they launched this this global Ranger, which they sold everywhere else except here. And you know, this is still basically the same truck that they've been you know selling, you know, in Asia and and Australia and everywhere else, you know, since 2013, I think 2012 or 2013. Yeah, they did a mild update on it when they launched it in North America about a year and a half ago. But, you know, it's still basically the same truck. And the argument that Ford made, you know, back then was they said, well, you know, we could do, you know, a, a smaller pickup truck, but it costs us, it costs almost the same to make the smaller pickup truck as it does to make an F-150. And you get so much, and it's not going to be much more fuel efficient. And, you know, you get so much more for your money with the big truck. And, you know. That was all they're true. Completely right. I mean, yeah. dude, they know well, their business. <laughs> yeah, no, it, you know, the, but what has happened, you know, in the years since then is that the prices on the F 150s just kept creeping up and creeping up and creeping up. And now it left a big gap in there where they could actually fit, you know, the Ranger into that gap, into that price gap below the F 150, uh, at least, you know, starting, starting prices, you know, like the, the XL, you know, starts at, at uh at thirty thousand uh, dollars you know which it's you know, still a lot of or money. actually no sorry starts at twenty four thousand dollars for the xl rear wheel drive yeah. like right yeah but even even the xlt you know starts at 28 grand 28 460 right but which is which is not bad and you know i i drove the ranger last summer and you know i, I the one i had was a lariat you know which was like forty three thousand dollars and you know the the truck itself is fine, but it's just it's not worth forty yeah. plus grand. And, like I know they don't go out the door for that too, but like that's also a problem because if your if your sticker and your transaction price aren't too close, like if there's too big of a delta there, then like you have missed and you're losing yeah. money on them. But yeah, as a truck, it's like, you know it feels solid. It it drives pretty well. It's well behaved. Um, it's you know it's not the most space efficient not the roomiest um that's just the nature of it it's i I like it better than the tacoma which is another mid-sized truck that sort of feels like it should be you know better than it actually turns out to be but the ranger doesn't have the rabid following that tacoma does um you know i think people were really excited for the ranger and the reality of it is a little different the back seat's kind of tight it's I, do you have the crew cab or the super cab um i think it's the crew cab um i don't have the sticker in front of me but the the you got four doors yes 
Yep. Okay, that's a crew cab. Okay, I didn't know if they had like you know like like Ram does where they've got four four doors with the back doors are yeah. a little tiny and then you got like four full the, size doors. The, yeah, well they they have the the super cab which has the rear hinge, like the clamshells, doors. Yeah, yeah the, the half doors. Yeah, um, that's. I can't imagine trying to. Well, I guess if you if you don't really use the rear seats all that much or that area, then then the smaller cab is worth it. But everybody buys four door trucks now and. It was nice to have a truck when the dishwasher decided it wanted to try to burn the house down. <laughs> like you try finding one on a Sunday, you know you're going to have to like drive it home yourself. And uh, so that was cool. Um, but it, it's it's just I don't know. I just I don't feel that it's a great value. Yeah, next, I, next time your kids try to light the house on fire, <laughs> you know, just tell them to get out. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's uh, go light the backyard on fire instead. It'll burn itself out. Uh, <laughs> the it, the truck stuff is good. I can see this as a, I actually liked how it's, it's got that sort of burly personality um, because our trucks are so refined. The, the, and I can see that that's really because this is a rest of the world truck where it sells for a lot less in a much more basic configuration. And they've cleaned this up as, as well as they could for this market, for, for our expectations. They've done a decent job. The materials I think in the interior aren't, aren't great and they're not going to get any better until the next generation. They're certainly not. They're certainly not great at $40,000. No, no. At $30,000 on the other hand, you, I think it would be fine. Yeah. You can just like kind of shrug it off at 30,000. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you, you know, if you got an XLT, um, you know, and that, you know, stayed away from most of the options list, you know, you could get out the door for yeah. under 30 grand yeah, for that. This had, I, so I had a little trouble telling whether um, it had about $6,000 worth of options, but you know, a good chunk of that, like four something was uh, listed as included, but I think it's said included because that's part of the FX4 package. And so like the FX4 isn't really something you, you're going to need most of the time. Like m most of these trucks, the FX4 is like a particular off-road kind of configuration. I, like, you don't you don't really need that if you really need the sticker fine but <laughs> you, you know that's that's extra capability that is is uh, i i guess it's far from me to judge but uh i don't see them getting that kind of use if you're going to use it like it's there and i think it's a very capable truck um the uh the the four cylinder was good i really like that that the turbo 2.3 in this this application is great. Um, the tech in here is, is actually pretty good. So they did a good job about getting their ADAS stuff in here. It's got radar cruise control. It has, um, you know, the, like the lane departure stuff and blind spot monitoring and um, the the backup sensors. And Ford puts them in the the tail lights, which is slick. I like that. So there's there's a lot of good thinking around it. Um, it, it had sync three, which is uh, not good. <laughs> Just a lot of, I was counting how many times I had to press buttons to get stuff and five different taps at the touch screen to go from the audio playback screen to climate. So I could shut off the dash vents um, and leave it on, on feet. Like that's, that's way too much. That, that should be one motion. Where you reach down and you press the button. That should be just a knob that you twist. Yeah. It, it, it should not be in a touchscreen. Yeah. 
Um, so that was horrendously annoying. I, I, I hate that part of it. The rest of it is fine. Um, and it's a, it's a good truck. And I, it, it'll be better the next generation. I still think the, the leader in this class for the, so if you're a weekend warrior, the one to get is the bridge line. Cause it's just going to be so much more refined. It's going to, it's also going to have, um, uh, an interface you hate. So <laughs> you might as well get the better truck. It's, it's a little bigger. It's more comfy. It's more, more efficient. Um, the, the Ranger probably tows better, but again, like is it may take stock of your actual needs versus like your imaginary needs. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in love with it. Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think we're going to see a next generation Ranger sooner rather than later, uh, based on the, you know, Ford's new truck platform, uh, which is also going to be under the Bronco. Um, so, you know, cause I, I think part of the reason why the, the Bronco launch came later than a lot of people expected, um, is, you know, that I, I believe that they have, they're using the same new body on frame platform that's going under the new F-150. Um, and then the Ranger will transition to that platform probably <clears throat> in the next, uh, 12 to 18 months. Oh, really? Guess. So they're going to do the Ranger off the same platform as the F-150 this the next time around? Yeah, I think they're, they're sharing, they're sharing a lot of the underpinnings between the two. That's what, you know, that's what they've said. So there's only going to be one basic body on frame architecture. That's, you know, anything that's body on frame is going to use the same basic architecture. Huh. That'll be interesting to see sort of how they do that because I mean, I guess components, you can make them more or less rugged and the frame itself is probably you know, pretty easy to. Yeah. Set. Make it narrower yeah. or wider. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's no, it's not my favorite truck, but I, I think they've done a good job and they were absolutely right when they said, yeah, okay, fine. We'll bring it here if you really want it, but you're not going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and you know, like, like you said, I think, you know, if, if you're, as long as you are judicious with the options list, it's actually a pretty decent truck, you know, and as long as you keep the price, the price point relatively low, you know, but it, you know, don't expect, you know, the high end versions of it to, you know, to kind of meet up with your expect, you know, with what we've come to expect of, you know, not nicer modern trucks. Yeah. Certainly compared to a Ram. Yeah. Well, and they're in, they're in a tough spot. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of enthusiasm for compact or, or you know mid-sized trucks, but I, I don't know that um, that enthusiasm. They, they actually sell pretty well. They, I wonder how many oh, yeah. are like individuals versus like it's the perfect thing if you're buying if you're buying a bunch of trucks for like a, a small fleet, like for a you know a facility or just you know something that needs a fleet. Like it's the perfect truck for that, and it's because you don't need the four-wheel drive ones. You can just get the basic ones, and and they're they're a little cheaper and they're a little bit more efficient than an, you know, an F series. And so there's, there's a niche for them. I just, uh, you know, I'm curious whether Ford's actually making money on them here. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they are making money on it. Um, you know, especially at these price points, you know, cause a lot of the ones they sell, you know, I think they sell, you know, they don't sell that many XLs. I think it's mostly XLTs and Lariats. I mean, the, the ones I see around are mostly Lariats. Yeah. I think the last one so, I drove was a Lariat. So I think I think they do sell, uh, you know, at a at a pretty good price point, and they probably make 
make pretty decent money for Ford. I was, look if you if you want to put it in perspective, it's like you know a ten or fifteen thousand dollar price cut on the Gladiator. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's that, 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 yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, they sold you know eight, almost ninety thousand Rangers last oh, year. That's not bad. That's and, more than I thought. And it, and it wasn't you know it was you know not a full year of sales. Yeah. Okay. It's that's that's not terrible. I mean, it's not F series, yeah. but it's <laughs> it's not terrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's also you know it's just one plant, you know, and that's true. So no, I, I think they're they're doing fine. I think they're they're happy with it. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll be curious to see the next one because um, I you know if this one's pretty good. That one's probably going to be a lot better. How how you feeling right now? You, you good? I'm 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 fine. No, no fever. No dry cough. No. Nope. <laughs> Um, None of that. The the, the coronavirus, I'm sure, has been on sort of everybody's mind and just, God damn it, just wash your hands. Uh, (laughs) But uh, it's had kind of an interesting impact on a few different parts of the automotive market. And so the uh, the first thought is, you know, production, no matter where you are, is going to grind to a halt if you can't get your components. And the way the way we have set up our our sort of supply chain or not we but the way the industry has set up its supply chain now it just seems to me like they've got single suppliers for a bunch of stuff and if that part doesn't come from where it's supposed to because the plant is shut down there's no alternative and you're not you're not getting it's just you're shut down like you're you're also shut down you're you're not producing anything and and this you know this has already had a huge impact in china um, where, you know, following the, the end of the Chinese Lunar New Year um, about a month ago, you know, basically, you know, a week-long holiday uh, across the country, most company, you know, most automakers, you know, told their, and, well, and a, lot of, a lot of companies, you know, told their employees to stay home, not to come back to work. Uh, the plants were kept shut down. You know, large swaths of China have basically been on lockdown for the past month. Uh, while they try to, you know, minimize human contact uh, and transmission of the disease, you know, I, I I saw a number that about 760 million people in China were basically quarantined to their homes, uh, which you know is pretty amazing. But you know what we you know what we've seen is that uh, already is in February new vehicle sales were down 92 percent. Basically, the entire auto industry in China has ground to a halt over the past month, and it's you know it's already starting to impact elsewhere. Um, you know, Hyundai has shut down a bunch of their plants in South Korea uh, because uh, they you know they were getting parts from some Chinese suppliers and they can't get those parts. Plus, you know, they've also had some uh, started to have some cases of coronavirus there. Um, the plant that builds the Palisade. Uh, just shut down the other day because one of the employees there was diagnosed with coronavirus. And so they're telling everybody to stay home. Uh, and in Japan, you know, uh, a Honda and Toyota plant uh, were shut down, I think, or I think it was Honda, Honda and it was either Toyota or, or Nissan. I can't remember. I forget. Were shut you down. But, you know, so far it hasn't impacted North American production well, anywhere. did GM have to fly in parts that they otherwise wouldn't have flown? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I didn't, I don't remember seeing that. Um, either way, like there, there are, there are, you know, there are various parts, you know, sourced from Chinese suppliers that are, you know, in a variety of different vehicles. And if this goes on, 
you know, much longer, we probably will start to see some production disruptions here as well. So, yeah. And then there's the idea. So, and you were explaining to me, just in time doesn't stretch out that far. It's, it's more, more localized sort of system so that your suppliers are within a, you know, particular mileage radius. That's not, you know, yeah. You know, for, for just in time production, uh, typically, you know, anything that is any parts that are just in time, they will keep no more than about three to four hours worth of inventory in the plant. So there's, there's fresh parts coming in on a continuing basis. And typically, you know, what, what we've seen happen over the last 30 years as they've transitioned towards just in time production is that as plants have been retooled and updated to support that we've seen networks of supplier plants, pop up around assembly plants, you know, usually within less than a two hour drive. Um, and very often, you know, they, they, they basically have a campus right next to the assembly plant where there will be a bunch of supplier plants located right next door, essentially. So, you know, the transfer of parts, you know, sometimes in some cases goes directly, you know, by conveyors or, you know, uh, by forklifts, you know, from one plant right next door into the, the automaker's assembly plant. Um, in other cases, you know, they still come in by truck, but there's, you know, the trucks are coming in on a continuous basis and they have no more than a few hours of supply. So, um, you know, there are some parts that are, you know, still not just in time, you know, that, that may be coming from a particular supplier, or particular vendor somewhere, but most of the stuff you know, comes is sourced relatively locally. So then unless we wind up in shutdowns or quarantines, our industry may be okay, largely um, maybe for a while, but it just, you know, it, it makes you think I heard um, I was probably auto line again that I was listening to. I, I listen to them on a regular basis and um they they said you know they may want to consider automakers may want to consider switching from just in time to just in case and i think that's actually a bad idea to to like keep you know to stockpile parts like maybe you want to keep some stock around um it always seemed seems to make sense to me when i run my non automotive uh <laughs> supply chain uh i want two vendors and i want them geographically disparate so you know, I've got, I, I usually just split them up by coast. So I've got, you know, an East coast and a West coast resource. And, uh, that seems to me like something that the automakers have probably thought of. So even with just in time, they may have multiple vendors for things or, you know, if they don't, then that's an issue. They've got to get some of the parts in just to sort of stockpile and keep the plants running. Cause what happens if a plant shuts down? Like they've got to, they still got to pay the labor, right? They, it's expensive. They're not, yeah. Um, yeah. You don't, you don't want a plant going down. Um, and in general, you know, the manufacturers have tried to move away from dual sourcing components, um, you know, because it also adds cost, you know, if you have to manage multiple suppliers yeah. and, you know, and manage, you know, the parts coming in from different sources. So they try to avoid dual sourcing. Um, they, they do it for some components, but for, for most stuff, it's, it's single sourced now, not necessarily across an entire automaker, but certainly for a particular plant, um, you know, or a particular model line. So it just seems so you know, shaky. Like I get the idea that it removes cost, but just it's, it, it's yeah. No well, I mean, the whole, 
whole premise of just in time, you know, is, you know, it is risky, but it also kind of forces you to really keep tight control on everything. Um, and you know, the, you know, there are advantages to it. It's not, it's not just a, uh, you know, a direct cost advantage of not having to stock inventory, but if there, you know, if there is a problem, you know, if, you know, if you start to get some bad parts in there, uh, you know, and, you know, if there was an issue at a supplier plant and, um, you know, parts were defective, you're not going to be sitting on a huge stockpile of defective parts by the time you realize yeah, it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, you know, you can, you can get, you can get these issues fixed quickly. Right. Uh, or at least, you know, that's, that's the that's theory. The theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, well, and, and it mostly works. Right. It's, and that's the thing. It probably, it, you know, it, the industry has probably shifted to it because it works better than other alternatives most of the time. And we're yeah. in one of those like not most of the time situations where you can't, you can't. Yeah, really I mean, this is one. a, yeah, this is this is one of those things that you you can, you know, even even in the you know the old days, you know, when they were stocking you know several days worth of parts, you know, in a case like this where you're talking about weeks of shutdown, you know, that still wouldn't wouldn't keep you going for very long. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, this is. You know, and the other issue that manufacturers are going to face is not just, you know, whether they can get the parts, but what is the overall impact on the economy going to be? Right. Um, you know, if we start to have, you know, we're already seeing, um, you know, travel is being cut way back. Well, you know, companies are telling their employees not to travel. My company has said, you know, no, no non-essential travel so there's, right yeah, now. But that, okay. So, and I was thinking about this. Um not usually with travel, especially with corporate travel, it's air travel. So does it now shift to vehicle travel? You know, are you no, we can have, no, they're saying no non-essential travel so period. They don't like, because they don't want you driving either. Yeah. They, you know, said, you know, unless it's absolutely essential to have an in-person meeting with a client, do a conference call, you know, um, you don't go to conferences. Um, you know, don't go to events. Don't, you know, don't go to the, trade show, you know, anything where there's large numbers of people because, you know, they, they don't want people getting sick. Well, I mean, it makes sense. It's the same thing as like, I, I, I will very liberally tell, you know, my, my direct reports if, if you feel sick, do not come into the office because <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get sick. I, if I get sick, I bring it home to four people and you know, like, it's the same thing. Like, just stay the hell away from us and we'll be more productive. <laughs> yeah. Well, un unfortunately that's, you know, that's, we can do right, that. that you know, luxury, we're, right. we're, we're, we, yeah, we have that privilege, you know, because, you know, we're, we're in jobs where, you know, we, we get sick, sick days. You know, if we, if we need to stay home for a few days or a week, whatever, we still get paid. But, you know, here in the U S especially, that's a luxury that a lot of people don't have, you know, one third of American workers don't have any sick. Oh, day. I know. Don't have any sick especially day. in the, you know, the industries that, would probably benefit the most from it. Something like food service. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, you know, and if you start looking at those lower wage jobs, that number jumps to 70%. Yeah. Don't have any stick. Yeah. Day. So all those people so, that are disease vectors, guess what? They don't, yeah. <laughs> they, they just get infect you. They, and and they, they can't afford to yeah. take days, unpaid days if off. So. Only there was something we could do about that. Oh, I'm just, yeah, well. uh, uh, but anyway, so the other, the um, other thing that, uh, so that's the production side of things. Like that's the, yeah. like the, the car building. So, um, car sales, if everybody's home or everybody's spooked, 
or there's just not that many cars or we've got other stuff on our mind and sales have been falling already for the last couple of years. Um, there's going to be an impact to just new vehicle sales. So I would expect that 2020 is not going to look that good. Um, no, it's, it's going to be a challenging year for everybody. Um, you know, and in, in every industry, not, not just the automotive industry. I mean, certainly airlines are going to be hit really hard, but automotive is, is going to take a hit this year and it's, it's going to be a challenge for everybody. Um, you know, we've already seen companies like Apple, you know, who are the most profitable company in the world, you know, come out with, uh, you know, a warning that they are not going to hit oh, their, right. their they, first they quarter. They revised their um, guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their numbers. So. Yeah, and we're gonna. I think we're gonna see the same from pretty much everybody going. You know, in the next few weeks. Although Zoom, um, yeah, Zoom, and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming like WebEx and stuff. Uh, WebEx is what Cisco. Oh yeah, they'll be they'll be booming. Do all right. <laughs> Google yeah. Hangouts. And <laughs> yep. Um. And and that brings me to my third sort of observation is um, auto shows. Like this is. This is just firmly pounding the nails in the coffin of auto shows. They just canceled Geneva, and we were talking before we started recording that New York stands a good chance of getting uh, shut down. And other adjacent industry shows. There's an an Intel show you you were talking about. Uh, no, the Nvidia, Nvidia. Uh, GPU Technology Conference was happening later this month, and I just got a notification today that that was canceled. Right. Uh, the Game Developer Conference in San Francisco this week has been canceled. Uh, Facebook has canceled their F8 developer conference next well, month uh, in the Bay Area. <laughs> Please just so, don't do that ever again. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, in, in general, we're yeah. seeing, you know, and, and, you know, a couple of weeks ago we saw, or last week, we saw Mobile World Congress in Barcelona got canceled at the last minute. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, this is not good. Well, I mean, that's, so that's a huge industry. That's a lot of union labor uh, to put mm -hmm. on the shows that is like, there's going to be a huge ripple. It's not just the shows not happening. It's all the people who make the shows happen. And so yeah. that's, that's a ton of work and people that are affected. And if automakers sort of understand when coming out the other side of this, like, Hey, you know what? We canceled the Geneva show, but our message got out there pretty efficiently. Actually, it cost us, less if we hadn't have eaten the cost because i'm sure that there was a lot of preparation in place um but if it doesn't turn out to actually hurt them to not attend an auto show because it's already been the trend anyway to pull out of auto shows uh i'm not sure that the auto show actually survives the coronavirus <laughs> yeah well <laughs> the uh, detroit auto show coming up in june and we'll see what happens with that one yeah well maybe that's the the other thing too is is like the there may be sort of pent-up demand to get out and actually sort of go see the cars in the metal and and sort of touch them and you know just be around them but you, you know like an auto show itself from a press perspective they kind of suck anyway like <laughs> you have yeah you just want the the uh sort of the live shots which you can get uh, although it is useful after that press conference happens um to try to snag somebody and get an interview um and that's where like the that's to me that's the real value are those in-person interviews that you're not getting if you're not at the show everything else you can deliver that in just a zip file i mean for me going to a lot of the conferences that i go to um, you know, and my job as an analyst, a lot of it is about talking, you know, meeting up with people and talking to them you know, and the, those in, in person conversations, you know, I, I find are hugely valuable for the work that I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and I'm sure it'll it'll sort of find a balance. Uh, but uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see who survives. Um, and maybe next year yep. the auto show landscape is different and smaller. Well, I mean, even before this, you know, they had already canceled the Frankfurt Auto Show. Um, you know, they decided that they're no longer going to do you know the big German Auto Show in Frankfurt anymore next year. Um, it's going to be smaller and move somewhere else, maybe Berlin or Hamburg. Yeah. Well, uh, the only constant is change. Which is, I, that's that's my way yep. to wrap that up. There was a story that popped up last week on the drive um, about uh, the the legend of the Jeep Plymouth Prangler. Um, and if you've never heard of this thing, it is a it's development an automotive jackalope. Uh, back in the <laughs> yes. Back, uh, well, I mean, jackalopes in, in automotive are actually not uncommon. Um, you know, these are what we call development mules. Uh, you know, early on in the development of a new vehicle, before they build, you know, actual prototypes that look like the vehicle, they, you know, they will, they'll have a lot of the components and systems that are already being worked on. Things like engines and transmission, suspension components. And they will bolt those onto existing vehicles, and you'll find all kinds of weird stuff. In this particular one, uh, when they were in the 1990s, when they were developing, when F, when Chrysler was developing the Plymouth Prowler, <laughs> the Plymouth Prowler, uh, which was this you know kind of production hot rod kind of vehicle, um, they they had uh, a bunch of these engineering mules where they actually took the um, the cab of a jeep wrangler and they most of the front end of the prowler and put them on the same chassis together because the the dimensions were about right you know for what they needed for a cab and you know they were testing these things and i remember i was working i was an engineer at kelsey hayes at the time and uh we uh rented track time at the chrysler chelsea proving grounds uh, to do our, our ABS testing and stability control testing. And, you know, I would go out there usually a couple of times a week. And I remember seeing these things out at the, the proving grounds running around, you know, it was the most bizarre thing. Uh, the, the Prangler, uh, I didn't know that they actually called them the Prangler at the time because it was never public, you know, it was never publicly talked about what these things were. Uh, but, you know, it was obvious from looking at it, you know, that it was a development mule for the, for the Prowler. Um, and apparently they built about 12 of these and they're, most of them were crushed. And typically these things are crushed because there's, they're no, nowhere close to street legal. Um, but, uh, that there's a rumor that maybe one of them might still be floating around out there somewhere, uh, in somebody's collection. But, uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen some weird ones, especially out at, at, at the Chrysler proving grounds. There were some oddballs. Like when they were developing the uh, the neon Dodge Neon, yeah. the original one in the early nineties, um, the development mules for that they had the Omnis <laughs> uh, from yeah. the nineteen eighties, <laughs> and they had those these things packed up, and because the, the neon had a much longer wheelbase than the Omni, you know, you had they you know cut these things up and welded them up, you know, so you had you know they were getting the the wheels pushed out to the corners of this thing. And it was very strange looking, um, and there were there were a number of bizarre vehicles. Yeah, out well, there. It, the and the, the so the Prowler, the Prowler was based on the LH, um, 
And because the LH could do front wheel drive and rear wheel drive in the same architecture. Yeah, because it had a longitudinally yeah. mounted engine. Um, so I'm assuming that that mule, that, that makes me think now, like, if you go get a Prowler, you can probably stick a Jeep. Uh, I guess it would be what? Uh, YJ tub on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to make your own, you could always roll your own. Nah, I'm not sure know, why you'd man. want the, to. The but... Prowler. The Prowler was an interesting exercise. I'm not sure if anybody was actually interested in it. Um, I guess they sold a bunch of them, though. They, they were they were Chrysler at its 90s peak. I suppose they yeah, sold okay. Well, they were expensive. I think, uh, yeah, I, and and they didn't have great no. performance. Well, all they had was that three point five liter V six. They were, and they were they were a yeah. little slightly like. Sometimes you can you can go too far. <laughs> they were a little bit too much. <laughs> um, they're, they're popular at yeah, the Woodward I mean, Dream Cruise. I'm sure they're fun. You know, if you want something like your, yeah. you know, your sort of Deuce Coupe without actually, you know having to worry about that particular although i don't know like a a a deuce coupe now built out of a catalog is probably super duper reliable given all the sort of standard parts you're using and the, the yeah with yeah. modern crate <laughs> engines and everything <laughs> so the prowler is probably the one that's actually not as reliable <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's all right um yeah so that's what's the weirdest mule you ever saw though was it um, probably the, one of the, I'd say one of the strangest, it, it didn't actually look that weird looking at it from the outside, but, uh, actually when I first start, when I first started at Kelsey Hayes, a couple of days after my, I started on the job, I had to fly up to international falls, Minnesota, where we did our cold weather testing. And I got there, got off the plane and I saw this white Dodge caravan. And I'm looking at it. I can see there was something that wasn't quite right about it, but I couldn't tell. I couldn't put my finger on it until I got up close. And it turned out, you know, like the the it had a little wider track than a caravan. The wheels were sticking out a little bit further than they should have, and the front end was a little bit longer than it should have been. And when I got up to it, I realized that they had actually sliced down uh along in a vertical line kind of along the, the back edge of the um the front wheel arches and basically spliced in a six inch <laughs> section and what this was was a development mule for the ford windstar oh that's hilarious so so ford they had they had about half a dozen of these things built up by uh roush uh roush engineering uh builds a lot of prototypes and stuff for multiple automakers but they do a lot of work for ford especially and so they took they got half a dozen um first generation caravan body shells and they sliced them up and the reason why they had to put in this six inch extension in the front was because the caravan at the time was available with either a four-cylinder engine or a mitsubishi v6 which is a 60 degree v6 but ford had their 3.8 liter v6 which is a 90 degree engine which was much wider than the, the Mitsubishi V6. And so they needed that extra space under the hood to fit yeah. that thing in there. And, uh, you know, so that's why it looked, you know, the proportions looked a little bit off. And, you know, when you looked at it up, when you got up close to it, you could see the, the spot welds and the, the welds and the sheet metal, you know, where they, they spliced <laughs> that in there. And then when you get inside, 
for some reason they they took out the original Dodge instrument panel and they they put in the instrument panel from a Taurus from a first generation Taurus because the Windstar was based on a lot of the Taurus platform components and so you, when you get in the driver's seat um it the instrument cluster didn't quite line up with where the steering column came through the firewall. <laughs> just get a hole saw, right? So the, yeah. Well, you know, so the steering wheel was offset, so you couldn't see the, the top half of the, uh, the speedometer, um, which was not handy when there were a lot of cops, you know, sitting around, you know, with the radar guns uh, in between the, the airport and the, uh, and the frozen lake where we did a lot of our testing. Um, and yeah, you know, there were there were, there were some other oddball things about this thing too, um, like you know they they put in the uh, the rear suspension. Uh, it had a, a prototype version of the rear suspension that was going to go into the um, into the um, the Windstar. Uh, at the time, Chrysler was still using you know just a basic solid spring. axle rear rear end with leaf springs, uh, and the Windstar you know the Windstar was going to have a trailing arm twist beam set up with coils and. So they had all that underneath. Um, and then the, the, the other thing was because when they built these up, they weren't quite sure how wide, ever, you know, how everything was going to quite fit together, which is, you know, when you're building these things up by hand, you know, you kind of have to, you know, work yeah. that out as you go. Um, so the, uh, the half shafts, what the, the Roush guys did was they, they made a bunch of the half shafts were in two pieces and, um, you know, they made, made them, made a bunch of them of several different lengths, you know, and basically just kind of, once they got the engine in there, they kind of figured out, okay, what length do we need for this? And so you had the, this two piece half shaft where, um, each half, uh, was drilled and tapped. And then there was a long stud that went <laughs> through the two and said, screw Jesus. it together, butt them up together and then weld around the seam between the two halves. <laughs> And because of the work that we were doing, doing ABS testing, you know, so we were doing, you know, I was, I was out on the, one of the, on the taxiway at International Falls Airport one day doing some, um, some high mu testing, you know, asphalt uh, stops. And I did a stop from 60 miles an hour. And, you know, then when I went to pull away, I just heard this bang and then the thing wouldn't move. So what the fuck, what, what's going on? And I got out and I looked around and I saw the two halves of the, the one half shaft on the one side hanging down. And it turns out that what was, and apparently this wasn't the first time this had happened. Um, the, the weld had broken. And so the, the, it just started to unscrew. The two halves started to unscrew yeah. from each other. And when it got, when the two halves got far enough away, it would start to bend and, you know, eventually it would bend that stud that was holding it together and just snap. <laughs> which is what happened. And so we had to go find a, a welding shop in, in I falls, you know, and, and get the guy to, uh, to fix the half shaft for us so we could continue our testing. All kinds of weird stuff up there. Cause it's, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, not so much in, in I falls anymore. Cause nobody's doing testing up there anymore. Cause, uh, everybody's moved over to, uh, Northern Michigan. Uh, so, but up, you know, near, uh, uh, near Sault Ste. Marie, uh, they do, I'm sure they get some weird stuff that, and, uh, over in northern yeah. Sweden. Yeah, I mean that's the the mules are fascinating, I, it, and Ford probably would have done better yeah. to just completely copy that first generation <laughs> Chrysler minivan. Yeah, given all the problems they had with the Windstar. Yeah, the Windstar was never a huge um, success. It was a it was a good try, uh, 
but yeah, I mean that just that rear axle rusting is still an issue. You see him, I see him now rarely going down the road. I'm just like, man, I got to pass this thing because the rear axle is just going to fall out. <laughs> I'm going to eat it. Um, I my favorite was the um, when Volvo was developing the 850, the uh, the mule that they used for the power to develop the powertrain and and sort of the engine compartment because it had very similar engine compartment dimensions uh, was a Citation. <laughs> it was an X car, um, which yeah, oh, lovely. And, and um, you know at that. That time they were building 740s that had Harrison AC. So I wonder if the X car had something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> well, there there was another one that what it wasn't quite a mule. It was actually it was actually a proper prototype. Uh, the um, the S197 Mustang. So this was the what was going to become the 2004 Mustang. And this was back in about 2001 2002 um, when the the first prototypes uh, became available uh, for testing and the this was more, you know, the camo they put on it. And I don't know if you remember, there were some, there were some, uh, camouflage, uh, there were some spy photos that popped up of some of these things. They had actually put on the, you know, cause it was a, a fastback coupe. They basically put a structure on the back to make it look like a station wagon, <laughs> shape it like nice. a station wagon. And then, you know, covered it with all the padding and everything. And, you know, on the, you know, when, when the automakers would send us uh, pro development prototypes, you know, they would always send them with car covers, you know, and they, there were custom car covers to fit over, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, the, uh, um, the, the cover, you know, the, for these vehicles, you know, said S197 uh, wagon on it Just because it, it so yeah. it could fit over that. Yeah. And then, well, one, one other uh, interesting one um, back in late, 80s like 89 or so 88 or 89 um at the time ford was considering using the what was the then new mn12 platform for a next generation mustang so this <laughs> is when the, they were still doing yeah, the original so fox the, MN12 bodies was the thunderbird the and, yeah yeah so that was the the 89 thunderbird and and such a Mercury great cougar mn12s and and you know it was it had you know independent rear suspension and you know it was a fairly long wheelbase. Weighed like nine thousand pounds. Well, that was the problem. It was heavy and it was expensive. But they 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 looked at using the MN12 and they actually built a development mule. They took a, a Thunderbird Super Coupe and cut the basically cut six or eight inches out of it. You know, so you had this shortened version of the Super Coupe. Um, and you know, had a wider track on it than the, than the Thunderbird did, uh, you know, so had these fender flares on it and there were some spy photos that popped up with this thing running around a track one day. Um, but, uh, that, I think there was only one of those ever built. They, they built it up to evaluate it and you know, that's all they ever did with it. They, they abandoned that because they realized it was, it was never going to be cost. MN12 parts in a Mustang and a, in a, yeah, I mean. It's, it sounds yeah. sounds good. That that car, I see. I don't know how many people know about that MN12. Like they they all rusted away, um, but that was like a a clone of the six series BMW, and they they got really close. Yeah, from a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, from a actually, it was closer really to the uh, to the eight series, the oh, yeah, first that's generation true. eight that's series. True. Um, 
But that, oh. I mean, that, that car, so they went from the Fox body Thunderbirds to the MN12s, which was just really sophisticated. And they were, they were great on the road. And you had the supercharged SXV6, the, the super coupe for the first couple of years. And then they, they put the five liter in it and the 4.6. That's, that's a great car. They didn't age all that well, but I, I, I liked that one <laughs> a lot. Yeah. You still see them around once every um, once in a while. Yeah, uh, we, they, yeah, a lot of them turned into um, oxide. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, all right. Well, I think that's that's enough on our topics uh, here. But you're going to talk with um, Rebecca when you guys get together, yep. and then we'll splice everything together. We'll we'll do our own splicing and spot welding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll put six more inches into the show. Joining pieces that shouldn't fit. So we're back. Rebecca and I um, were at the GM Design Dome at the uh, at their tech center in Warren, Michigan, this morning, uh, where GM held uh, their EV day. And or actually, their GM's actually doing a, a bunch of stuff all week long. They've been doing uh, the same presentation for employees and for they did it for media today. Uh, this afternoon, they were doing it for Wall Street financial analysts. And at this event. We learned a whole bunch of stuff about GM's new electric vehicle architecture and saw a bunch of the EVs that are coming to market uh, starting next year. Uh, I think uh, we saw, what, about 12 different vehicles altogether, 11 of them uh, in, in physical form and another on the screen. And what's, what's your first impression of what we saw today, Rebecca? So my first impression when we walked into the design dome, which, first of all, it's such a privilege to go there. It really is just it's really cool to you know think of the history and everything that goes on that's been designed there. But, but when I first walked in, I was just immediately struck by the. GMC Hummers, uh, Hummers. <laughs> there was two of them, yeah. which was a lot of fun. And I absolutely loved the new Buicks, which I don't even think they really talked about, but I very much, but they were just beautiful. I thought overall the designs were really elegant, very modern without being alienating. And just overall a really, really, really beautiful job. Yeah, I think I think overall, I agree. I, I would say overall, they they did a very good job on them. Um, you know, and what what we saw today, uh, as you said, two Hummers. So we saw pickup truck, um, and they're bringing back the names that they used on the, the Hummer H two. So you've got the Hummer SUT for sport utility truck. So this is sort of a a unibody, you know, kind of short bed pickup truck. You know, so it's it's not it's not going to be a truck for somebody who's looking for huge um, payload capacity, you know, cargo carrying capacity in the back. Uh, but, you know, shorter bed, I think it's probably about, it's probably about a four and a half, five foot. Yeah, bed I was thinking back. that. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the SUV. Um, and what we also saw uh, a full-size Cadillac uh, SUV. So uh, probably a little smaller than an Escalade, but but not much. Not um, much. That thing was there, big. <laughs> yeah. There were two uh, Buicks, uh, two Buick crossovers, a midsize and a compact crossover. Uh, also, uh, the Cadillac Lyric, uh, which with is a be, with a Q, and apparently <laughs> that's going to be the the style, the naming style for Cadillac going forward. As they as they bring back names, it sounds like they're going to end them all with the letter Q. 
so this is the, the SUV that we saw teased uh, last year at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, and we'll be seeing it. We, we saw it in the design dome today, but they'll be revealing it to the world uh, about a month from now in Los Angeles. Uh, and also a Chevy midsize crossover, uh, which is like, oh. roughly about the size of a blazer. Uh, yes, that is the trailblazer. Is is that what they're going to call the trailblazer? I, I, I can't comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that I, be, I believe that that is going to be the trailblazer. Okay. Um, and then um, we also, uh, they, they had the cruise origin there. Uh, they had the 2021 Chevy Bolt, which is coming out this fall. So this is a refresh of the Bolt. Right. And it stays on the current EV architecture, which they call BEV2. Uh, and uh, then there's also the Bolt EUV, which is finally getting the crossover version of the Bolt that we've been waiting for for a while. And needing. And then. Yes, and then the cruise origin that we saw in San Francisco in January, which is also off Bev three. So let's let's kind of go around the dome. Um, let's well, let's start with the Hummers. Th- then there was the last one. Well, we'll get we'll get to that. Okay. One. okay. We'll, we'll we'll finish off with that one. <laughs> okay. Well, just just like they did this morning. Yeah. So what did you think of the Hummers? So I thought the Hummers were great. I mean. You know, I have I have a, an affection for the brand. Uh, I it was one it was the first vehicle I ever took in true off road like rock climbing sort of off roading, and just had such a good time with it. I think it's you know I like the I like the the design language that they have brought back. It looks very similar to the H3. Uh, it has that, you know, very square, bulky feel. I think it's really impressive that it is all electric, but they have not compromised on the design of it. I, I would love to see the arrow numbers on that thing because it's just a <laughs> square, you know? Well, and, yeah, I mean, it's, there's, there's a little bit more rounded contouring than the, 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 old hummers but not much i mean you will you will immediately recognize this thing as a hummer exactly right which i love and you know the other thing is even if it were slick this thing's got such a huge frontal area that it wouldn't matter anyway right so you're gonna have (laughs) any way you look at it you're gonna have a lot of drag on this so the thing that and i I love the fact unfortunately they didn't show it uh but because most of what we saw today would play models but i i love the fact that it's going to be the tonneau top and you actually store those tops in the front so you store them in the front so that that you know that front space that normally houses the powertrain actually has a use for it and a specific use for it and as you said at the beginning this is not designed for a work truck this is designed very much for a a weekend warrior a lifestyle vehicle exactly which is again i think it's great that they're embracing that they're not trying to make hummer something that it's not i in in terms of how people use the vehicle but it certainly is significant that of course it's electric yeah absolutely and you know as you said the the tops you know the target tops you know it's similar um in configuration to you know if you get a hard top wrangler now you know a wrangler unlimited you've got the the four panels that you can take off over each of the seats and you can take those off, and put them in that front. Um, and so what's, uh, let me ask you, what's the difference between a Tonneau and a Targa? Tonneau is the, the cover that goes over the, over the pickup. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I misspoke. The Targa yeah. rooftops. Yeah. Yes. Those pieces yeah. come off, which I think is really cool. Yeah. 
Um, so I think that I think Hummer fans will probably really like this thing. I'll, I'll be curious to see how much it costs. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not going to come cheap. Uh, but with the, the kind of performance that they're promising from this thing, you know, uh, the top end version with three motors, uh, you know, this is going to have, uh, part of what they showed us today was the new EV, the electrical architecture, the the EV drive architecture, the batteries and the motors, the, the motors are, they are designed so they can scale it up and down to different power levels. And in the the top end Hummer, you're going to have three 250 kilowatt motors. So that's 750 kilowatts, which is about a thousand horsepower and one in the front, one in the front and then two at the rear axle. And, you know, they've, they've said this thing's going to do zero to 60 in about three seconds, uh, which as you said, for, for a vehicle this size, you know, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's people that are going to look at, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, how people compare this thing against the Cybertruck and also the Rivian R1T, which is, you know, it's quite, I think the, the Rivian is quite a different truck, but it's, it's, I think it's kind of going after the same customer base, you know, this premium lifestyle truck, uh, type of customer. Absolutely. Uh, what, how, you know, what do you think, you know, versus something like the, uh, uh, like the cyber truck? Well, I think it's, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it's one could argue that it's a different customer. On the other hand, it's not really, it's that person that wants uh, a, a head turning vehicle and that wants everyone to look at them. I mean, it's very, you know, the Hummer brand is very much a look at me and the Cybertruck is very much a look at me. I think that I could see a younger consumer going after the Cybertruck because it's just so weird looking, whereas the Hummer is more traditional, you know, it has more traditional portion proportions. And so while I think that the customer profile will be very similar in terms of mindset and probably even income and education, and I think the age difference, I think we may see a difference in the age where a younger consumer is going towards the cyber truck and a little bit older consumer towards the Hummer. I think we also may see a difference on the coasts as well, which Mary Barra, when she was there today, talked about trying to expand on the coast but so i think that you know we we could see some competition there uh for the same buyer but i do also think that they're they're both they're so polarizing in some ways uh you know especially the the cyber truck uh that you could see a really totally different uh demographic buying it yeah i, I agree <laughs> i think that i think that the, the people that that look at the cyber truck and you know they just recoil at the the way it's the way it appears you know like me for example and me you know that that wants that wants something like that you know that has that kind of capability may turn and look at the, the hummer and you know say hey, that that's actually more more my style uh, i think one something that's going to be fascinating is the um the pricing on this mm. because you know, the Cybertruck, you know, they made a big deal of the fact that, you know, the starting price is going to be $40,000. I don't think you're going to get one of these Hummers for probably less than 60. Uh, so it's probably going to be a, quite a bit more expensive than the Cybertruck. Yeah, which which I think is kind of too bad. 
you know, because although let's face it, nobody's buying a $40,000 Hummer, a $40,000 Tesla, you know, that's not happening. So the starting price may be different, but I, I suspect the transaction prices are going to be the same, if not the Cybertruck selling even at a higher price uh, eventually, you know, as equipped. So it'll be definitely fun to watch. And of course, Rivian as well. Now, Rivian, their challenge is brand recognition, you know, and so GM, again, was, I think, very clever to bring Hummer back. Uh, because everybody knows what it is already and they don't have to spend the money to build a new brand up or nameplate up. But, you know, Rivian does. And so I think they could struggle a little bit in that regard in terms of get, uh, building up brand recognition and dealers. And, you know, they're, it's it's a lot to build a brand. And so Rivian has some more challenges on their plate than Tesla or Hummer. That's true. Although, you know, um, Tesla you know, didn't have a brand, you know, a dozen years ago. And, you know, well, they, the brand that they built around was Elon Musk and yes. Rivian has RJ Scarringe. And I think, you know, once, once they start to come out a little bit more, you know, later this year, you know, and really start showing that, showing those vehicles, you know, as they get ready to launch production, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of interesting comparisons between Scarringe and Musk. Um, does, does RJ have a Twitter feed? <laughs> uh, no, I, be- I don't believe he does. Well, so that he um, needs to get that. <laughs> and, and to, to the best of my knowledge, you know, from, uh, from the, the interactions that people have had with him, I also don't think that he's insane. No, so, exactly. no, I think he's lovely. I, I, yeah, I got a no. chance to meet him. Yeah. It's a very different character. Yeah. All right. Speaking of building brands, Cadillac is going back to names they're abandoning the ct and xt branding so why don't we just dive right into the next part of this uh which is you know cadillac building new brands um back in december uh i was at uh, a a business update launching with steve carlisle the president of cadillac here in detroit and he told us that one of the things cadillac's going to be doing is going back to names. They're dropping the CT and XT nameplate branding. And the first new model that they're launching that has a name is this new midsize crossover, electric crossover, that is going to be revealed on April 2nd. Um, And it's called the Lyric. Uh, The other Cadillacs, uh, one of the other Cadillacs that we saw, uh, does not yet have a name. That's the full-size SUV. What do you think of the Lyric? I thought it was beautiful. I mean, I think that they did a really nice job continuing the the design language of vehicles like the Escalade, but again, translating it into something that is electric, something that is still is luxury oriented, modern. I love the fact that the headlamps are always going to be vertical now. That's really cool. Like that's a really interesting approach. And I have to tell you, I don't know if you got a chance to look at some of the materials that they're coming out with for the interior, because they are gorgeous. Gorgeous. And yeah, they they've they've done a really nice job on the oh. interior that hopefully that translates to the production version. Well it does. Uh, so there was a little display that they had and there was so much to see today, but there was a little display that they had with four different uh 
what do they call those scenarios sort of things. And they're just gorgeous. Each one, they actually are embedding flowers into the, uh, into the, the, like the, the wood and the, like the, the, where the, um, I don't know what, what you call it, but like the, like where everything is like piano black, you know, instead, like on the door panels, uh, there's going to be that. I mean, it looks crazy, but there's like flowers that (laughs) have been like (laughs) put into the resin of this material and the wood that they chose was stunning, just stunningly beautiful. So I think that, I think, first of all, most of this pro most of these products are all Michael Simcoe, who is now the head of design and, you know, took over from Ed Welburn, who was a legend himself. But I think that Michael really has been able to be expressive in the design language that he is bringing to all the brands. But I think obviously with Cadillac's budget, you know, from a, um, a pricing standpoint, they can put a little bit more flair into these vehicles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, there was some really interesting details about this for one thing, you know, because these are EVs, they no longer need a, a big grill in the front, but they're still giving it a Cadillac face, but they've, they've reimagined the face right. of Cadillac on these vehicles. And so, you know, what you're going to see now is this dark area with angled lights, like it's so kind of a pinstripe effect, you know, but also, also kind of a sunburst effect, you know, the way the, the lines come out angle outwards uh, from the center point, you know, from the, from the seam down the, the center of the car. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very interesting effect. It's hard. It's kind of hard to describe it uh, in words right now until you see it, it is, uh, a I, month from now. I did a terrible sketch of it <laughs> while yeah. I was sitting there. And basically it, it has these, they've, they've used lighting to really dramatic effect. And so you do have the Cadillac emblem, which I think they, they said was going to be white because you had asked that question, right? That they were Yeah, gonna, it's going to be lit. Right. It'll be lit up from the back. And then the, uh, and then the, it comes down, like the, the accents are all very vertical and have this V shape, the sideways V shape to them. And then of course, you know, the air intakes, which I don't think they, I don't, do they need air intakes if it's electric? <laughs> but uh, Well, yeah, I mean, there's still, there's still some cooling required for the, you know, the battery thermal management. Um, so yeah, you'll, you'll have some air intakes, but they'll be much smaller than for an engine. Right. But they're doing, they're still doing them. They look, they still look bigger, but the functionality is still there. But so it's, it's all very, uh, it's almost simple, but at the same time, very, very dramatic. Yeah, and wh- I talked to I later uh, later in the after during the Q and A I talked to one of the other designers because we a couple of us had the question of you know with the the badge on the front being lit you know today the the badge you know has uh, different colors on it is red and I think red and yellow and blue uh, in the badge in the various segments of the of the Cadillac yes. badge yes that and those colors are going away it's just going to be white yes and I asked you know why why white you know or you know why not you know the colors I said, well, because of lighting regulations um, oh. on the front of the car, white is the only color you're allowed to use on the front. Oh my gosh, how except funny! For, except for except for turn signals. How funny! And so that's why it's white. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting look, and I think we'll get we'll get used to it. 
you know, and then at the, the back, they've also done some interesting stuff with the, with the lights, with the taillights, you know, so you, you've now got two sections of taillights. There's an upper section and a lower section. You know, the lower section is, you know, just kind of the vertical uh, lights, you know, similar to what we see on a lot of the Cadillacs today. And then the upper section is sort of a, a hockey stick, you know, with a horizontal segment that as it comes around the side and goes up the C pillar, you know, angles upwards. Right. So it's, it's, it's an interesting effect. And that's, we saw that on all three of the Cadillacs that we saw today. Um, well, and, and then, right. It was very consistent across, you know, the, the, the language, the design language, I think was very, very consistent across the board, which is, you know, a very appealing. Right. And, and despite that, you know, all three vehicles had, you know, their own distinctive look. So they weren't just one design scaled up and down. They were, you know, they, they each had their own unique elements, but with common themes that, that tie them together as Cadillacs. Uh, and then on the inside, one of the interesting details, you know, this, this one that they're going to show next month, you know, is technically labeled as a concept, but it's basically a pre-production model. Um, but, it, you know, like a lot of concepts, it has, you know, a camera mirror system rather than big side mirrors. Uh, which obviously aren't legal here in the U.S. yet, but hopefully by the time this comes out, they may be. Uh, but in, usually, when you have the the camera mirror systems, like on the European spec Audi e-tron, um, you know, or other vehicles, they they usually put the displays for those systems at the ends of the dashboard, at either end of the dashboard. Like in the in the e-tron, they're actually mounted in the door panel just below where the mirror, where you would normally see the side mirror. Right. Cause when I was in Abu Dhabi, I drove, I drove with those, which was right. weird. On this one, <laughs> what they've actually done is integrate it into the central mirror. So now, you know, and you, it's, this also has the, the rear camera, the rear view camera mirror system that we have on a, a bunch of GM vehicles now. Um, but the outers and, but they've made it wider and the outer segments of that, show the display from the side mirrors. So you see side mirror, then a wide view, you know, straight back. Yeah. And then the the right side mirror on the on the other side. And it's an interesting approach. And I talked to the designer about that and he said, yeah, you know, we're we're experimenting with some some different ways to do this depending on the size of the vehicle and where we can package the displays, you know, what what we're trying to do with the interior. You know, so on a smaller or mid sized vehicle, we think this is a good good approach to it. And then on the big SUV, um, the what they showed there because that one actually has like the Escalade that we saw recently. Um, you know these these two EVs have a curved um, display that stretches across. And the in the case of the the Lyric, you know it stretches from you know, pillar to pillar. Well, no, on the Lyric it doesn't go pillar to pillar. It goes from the left side of the dash across. You know just over the center console. Which one was pillar the, to pillar? That was the big SUV. That one went. Oh, okay. That was stunning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so on that one, they would have the camera displays on the outer ends of that large display. Yeah. So they're, they're looking at different, different approaches to it. And it'll be interesting to see what, what, uh, what ends up coming to production if it does. Um, and the, the, you know, the, the Lyric was one of the, the few cars that we saw today that were, you know, actually full vehicles, you know, it had a full interior and everything that we could actually see and sit in. Whereas many of the others that we saw today were that were on display were clay models. Right. And so they had no interiors. Right. Uh, but we saw renders of what the interior would look like. 
Um, so what did you think of the big utility, the big Cadillac? I mean, I just, I, I, can't, I thought it was, it was, first of all, I, I was struck by the size. And, and my first thought was, how are batteries going to propel this thing? <laughs> you know, how do you put so many batteries in? But then, of course, when we talked and learned more about the battery system, then it became clear how they're going to do that. But no, I think, I think overall, the design was beautiful. I think, again, the interiors were stunning. Everything we saw today looks like an internal combustion engine vehicle, which was cool in my mind because I'd want to normalize electric vehicles as opposed to being something that just looks weird. Although thinking about the Cybertruck, maybe that's what people want. But I do think that there's an element, we'll you know, there's a, there's plenty of people that want to have a, a traditionally styled vehicle. And I don't mind, I don't, I don't mean to say that these are boring. I mean, to say that it looks like a regular car and it just happens to be electric. Right. And you know, the, the proportions, you know, are classical, I see yes, proportions, exactly. but, but you know, they're, I think that they've, they've tried not to make them too traditionally styled. You know, each one of these, represents a new design language for the, or well, aside from the Hummer, represents a new design language for the brand. Um, so next one up, um, the, uh, the Chevy crossover, um, you know, which is, it was roughly the size of a blazer, you know, right. size utility. Um, <laughs> the first thing I thought when I saw it though, uh, gee, those headlights look awfully familiar. <laughs> that was your Volvo. <laughs> yes, that was, they, they, the headlights, you know, are slim headlights with angled up uh, bits at either end that look just like the Thor's hammer signature lights on the on current generation Volvos. Um, so, you know, that one was a clay and, you know, they said it's still a work in progress and that one's probably going to change somewhat, um, you know. So hopefully they'll come up with something maybe a little more original for the lights, the front lights on that one. Yes. Um, what about the, the two Buicks? I... The, I loved those. They were the ones that my eye went to right away. And again, I did a very poor rendering of those, but they reminded me of Porsches. The front end of them looked like the Macan. Um, actually, you know what they reminded me of? There's a, a Chinese EV brand oh. called Xpeng. Well, that's never good. <laughs> yeah, that was the first thing I thought. Well, I mean, think about it. They're probably, you know, the origin very well may be. Chinese, you know, in China. So it's not entirely surprising, but I, I love them. I thought they looked fantastic. Yeah. Well, and actually, you know, because, you know, China is the biggest market for Buick, you know, that's where, that's where Buick sells most of its vehicles is in China. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, they were specifically going for a look that, uh, you know, was more targeted to the Chinese market. And, you know, would be more familiar there. It, I, I agree. It's, I think it's, it's a good look. Um, you know, it's, and it's totally, it's totally different from, you know, the classic Buick style that we've become accustomed to, or even the, the more recent Buick style, you know, which is, have, was heavily, you know, shared with Opal. Right. Um, you know, so this, you know, there's no portholes on this thing, no fake <laughs> portholes or anything like that. It's a, it's a, it's a complete departure for Buick. It is. And I, again, I thought I, I liked the, they had very narrow sort of sinister looking headlamps on there. It has, I'm just looking at my, at my 
again, my very rough drawing of it, very mm-hmm. long, sleek lines, that same mm-hmm. sort of angular approach that Cadillac has, but without it being a, a duplicate of it. Like it was distinctly different than Cadillac. So some of the same lines, some of the same uh, approach was taken, but you end up with a quite a different looking vehicle. And so I thought that I, I really liked them. I thought they were really cool. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so before we get to that last one, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the technology. Yes. You know, one of the things that in the, the opening remarks, you know, Mary Barra talked about, you know, the expectation that all of these new EVs from GM are going to be profitable from the start. You know, they they don't intend to be losing money on these things right. going forward uh, like they have in the past. And so, you know, to do that, you know, they need to be able to sell lots of these. You know, they need to sell them in scale. They need to make them more affordable, which, you know, they acknowledged that, you know, the EVs have got to be more affordable. And, you know, they've they've also got to address, you know, charging issues, which they're they're also dealing with. To get the cost down, they've done some very interesting engineering on these things. They've, you know, part of this BEV, what they're calling the BEV3 architecture is this new battery pack design which they're referring to as Altium, which I don't know why, but anyway. <laughs> it's the ultimate. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, except it's not because they know they're going to yeah. continue moving forward and continue <laughs> to evolve batteries. So anyway, um, you know, they've, they've been working with their partner, LG Chem, on uh, batteries. And um, a key element of this, you know, because the battery is the most, by far the most expensive component in sure. the EV. And, you know, so if you can get the cost of that down, that gets you a long way to work towards making these things, you know, par- cost parity mm-hmm. with, with internal combustion engines. And um, the current Chevy Bolt, you know, the cells in that cost about $145 a kilowatt hour. And the, the total pack, we estimate, is about $220 mm-hmm. per kilowatt hour for that design. Wow. Okay. Um, the, for the, the new cells, which they're eventually going to be manufacturing in Lordstown, Ohio, in this new joint venture plant that they announced with LG uh, in December. Um, they're using uh, a, diff- a little bit different cell design. There's still a pouch cell like they've had in the past, but it's a longer, narrower cell, and it's going to be used across the board on all of these EVs. There's going to be 20 new GM EVs by 2023. How long? How and what were the dimensions of those? Would you say they they like, didn't give the right, dimensions? Like four but by I guess, sixteen. Four by eight. Yeah, probably 16, 18 inches long, you know, about yeah. four or five, four and a half inches wide. Uh, so it's a narrower And very uh, cell. thin, and, half, an, yeah. half an inch well, thin, half an yeah, inch thickness. Yeah, and it's, it's, it looks, it actually looks very much the same cell format as the ones that Ford is using mm-hmm. in the Mach-E. Uh, so because they're, they're using a similar, it may not be exactly the same dimensions, but it's similar, longer, narrower. And that's a direction that a lot of companies are going to. When I was at CES, I, I had a meeting with the uh, with folks from SK Innovation, another uh, China, uh, Korean battery maker. And they talked about this is the direction everybody wants to go so that the, they can make the, the battery pack thinner so it doesn't have to be as tall. Sure. Um, but what, what they've done is the, the current batteries, the current lithium-ion batteries, most, most companies are using um, what's known as NMC, nickel manganese cobalt chemistry. But cobalt is really expensive, and it's also kind of hard to get, you know, and it, the, most of the cobalt that's mined 
is mined in Central Africa, especially in, in the Congo. And there's a lot and of under, controversy around it. Yeah, it, under very bad conditions. Yes, um, child and labor so, and awful things. Yeah, Right. So because of that, you know, companies are trying to get away from using cobalt in batteries. And so this, um, this chemistry that GM developed with LG Chem, they've added aluminum to the mix and they've reduced the cobalt content by 70%. And so what they're saying is that this, these cells will now be down to under a hundred, a hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. Um, and you know, so that's compares to 145 on their current ones. And they're so all, that's, that's a, okay, sorry. That's a that's a significant cost reduction. It is, and they're also working to secure uh, raw material sources, and mm -hmm. so that they they can have a little bit more control over just getting the raw materials in as well, which I think will also help control costs. Yeah, and and again, you know, like other manufacturers like BMW and Volkswagen and Daimler, you know, they're they're all trying to do that uh, to make sure that they can control the costs. Then the other thing that GM did that, you know, that while they emphasized the, um, the chemistry, they also did some really cool stuff on the, the, the pack design side of it. Like one of the things they did is uh, in the past, the battery management system has been, uh, you typically have one battery management system that governs the entire battery pack, the finished battery pack. What they've done now is they've taken that and moved that down and integrated the battery management system into each of the individual modules. And the, a battery pack can have uh, anywhere from eight to 24 modules in it. And each module's got, I think, about a dozen cells in it. And so they can, uh, by doing that, they can actually control the output of the modules at, you know, at the, the module level and balance those. So now what they have is the, that gives them the ability to mix different, cell chemistries, you know, and take a module with a different cell chemistry and stick it into a battery pack and ha still have it work. In the past, you always wanted to have the same, you know, so that they were balanced output across all of them. And what that means is, you know, down the road when they have to service these things, they don't have to stock, you keep service parts stock of all the old cell chemistries. You know, they can, they can update uh, an individual module in a pack with a, a module that's got newer cells in it and still have it work and then you know once the battery is you know end of life for the vehicle and they want to reuse those modules for things like stationary storage for you know for solar or wind farms or anything like that they can now makes it easier for them to mix and match those modules with that might have different cell chemistries in them and use them together in you know in a big uh large uh battery station you know for uh, for stationary storage um, so all that, you know, that potentially gives GM another revenue stream down the line at the, at the end of life. But, um, you know, by, by putting the, the ma battery management right in the module, they cut the wiring in the battery pack by 80%, which also reduces the cost. And, you know, now the, you know, in the current pack design, the, the cells account for about 60% of the cost of the pack. So, you know, the, the, the cost, you know, the, the, the uh, um, the the rest of the pack, you know, aside from the cells, you know, that brings the the bolt battery pack from 145 to 220 dollars. Now you're talking about a finished pack that's probably going to have a cost of less than 120 dollars a kilowatt hour. So almost half the cost of the bolt, yeah, uh, on a on a per kilowatt hour basis. And then you know they can 
that can take these standard modules that they've got and put them in all kinds of different ways, you know, put, you know, different numbers of them depending on the size of the vehicle and the performance they need. So going back to the Hummer and that big Cadillac SUV, instead of having one layer of modules in the battery pack under the floor, they have two layers of modules. So they've got 24 of these modules in there to give them up to 200 kilowatt hours of capacity. Well, that's what and, I found the most impressive, like from a, yeah. just from a, a design and consumer standpoint, looking at how they can rearrange those batteries, looking at how they can put together these, you know, that six, eight, 10 or 12 module, whatever they need and be able to put them horizontally, be able to put them, they can put them vertically. They can put them in, in all different configurations and in all different spots. You remember when he was talking about that wheel well that or, mm -hmm. ordinarily you wouldn't be able to put anything in there. Suddenly they can put even more. I think he said something like 60 kilowatt. They could, I, I mean, it was just tremendous how they can utilize every inch of the vehicle now. And, and, it, you know, with, the, of course, uh, our listeners well know, then that in turn helps with handling, with how the vehicle drives. Like it, there's so many benefits to being able to use it, not just from a range standpoint, but also from a driver experience standpoint, when you have that kind of, of, you know, wide stance and, and solid stance like that. I, I, I'm excited to drive these things. Yeah, well, one one of the you mentioned, you know, they can stack the um, the um, the cells horizontally or vertically. If they do them horizontally, you know, so they're stacked on top of each other. Now they can do a, a, a slimmer module, and you know, so for cars where they want to have a thinner battery pack to go under the floor for a lower profile car, and you know, one of the interesting potential applications of that would be in the car you drove last week, the Corvette. There you go. Imagine that. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we've seen some, there were some spy photos that showed up a few weeks ago of a Corvette with a plug, a C8 yeah, Corvette yes. with a plug. And there was speculation it would be a plug-in hybrid, but you know, GM has already said they're not doing any more hybrids or plug-in hybrids. Right. It's all battery electric going forward. And so, you know, if you've got a battery pack that's that thin, you could easily put that under the floor of, of the C8, you know, and between under, between the floor and then the center tunnel, um, you could you could put lots of battery in there and have a, a C8 with a lot of range. Yeah. I mean, I think that what I came away with today was the idea that there's a lot of flexibility in what they're doing. What did Mark say at the end there? It was like 19, there's 19 different configurations that they can do then in all different, you know, front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, different motors. Like it was just, I mean, that's kind of what my takeaway was. It's just that there's a lot of flexibility here and there's very little limitations to utilizing these batteries. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and speaking of utilizing these batteries, they, at the end of the event, after the Q&A and everything, they had one more thing to show us uh, that had been sitting there under a silk the whole morning. And they pulled the silk off of this and it's a new cat, a flagship Cadillac sedan that they're calling Celestic. Ending with a Q. With a Q. <laughs> yes. So what did you think of the Celestic? I, you know, I'm sitting here looking at my notes and I, I did mention handcrafted, but then I wrote, oh my gosh, the back end is enormous. <laughs> yeah. So. It's, it's a four door. It's this very long sedan. 
I just, I mean, the lines of it are very long. I, I thought that three quarters of it was stunningly beautiful. The back end, especially from our angle, I mean, because it got better as we walked around it, but the back end was just, it was just enormous. And it was this hatchback looking thing. Yeah, I think it, I think it actually is a hatchback. Yes, for for utility is what I because then I pulled over the the designer that we um that we first met with. I I have her name here somewhere. I you know I tried to, I asked her about it because I'm very I'm always very blunt at these things. I'm like you got to explain this thing to me because I don't get it. And she was very disappointed that I didn't get it. And clearly, I have an untrained and not sophisticated eye. And, but it just. I th- I thought I thought the proportions of it were beautiful from the front. I love the fact that it still has that you know a, a front end, uh, and then you know the rakish windshield, the clean clean lines, and then you get into this back. and And what she told me was that they wanted to give it more utility, and so it basically is a hatchback. It almost looks like the Audi A7 or S7, but mm-hmm. with an extra thing on top of the back like right well, do you know I what think, i mean I, yeah I, I think you know the the issue i think for me at least is that you know you, you've got this this hatchback there but it's basically on the sides at least you know it's solid metal or solid yes you know it's there's no there's no glass there so you've got you know the the side glass goes up to the back of the rear door to the c pillar and then it stops and then it's solid after that. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, you're right. The C pillar was, was the problem. And so that gives it this enormous, you've got this in what looks like an enormous C pillar. When you get up close, you realize there's a cut line there because it is that hatch. Right. Um, but it, it gives it this enormous amount of weight <sighs> on the rear end. It does. Which, you know, from the front three quarters, this thing looks so amazing. Right. And then as you move around the side and you see it in profile, that, back end just looks so heavy I, I, I have to tell you and then when you look at it from straight behind it looks great because you don't see that right, metal there right the the audience was silent right yeah when you think back when they pulled that cover off nobody clapped nobody said anything <laughs> yeah they were they were kind of stunned right i mean that was the first it's it's sort of you know, and granted, this is not a cyber truck event, but you know, it still was that idea. And, and Mark was you know effusive about this, and everyone just sort of stared at it like, oh my gosh, what just happened to us? Because everything else was so appealing in the dome, everything else looked great, and then and then this celest celestique. Celestic. Celestic. I, I I saw the I saw their um their teleprompter and it actually said shoelastic. That's <laughs> how he was <laughs> supposed to pronounce it. <laughs> they spelled it out phonetically for him. Oh. But you know, I and the thing, the shame of it really is that from so many angles, it looked beautiful. But what the again, what the designer, what she was trying to tell me was that. They wanted to do something different because I said, you know, all you've been talking about are short overhangs. And then this thing has like three feet behind the rear wheel. And she's like, yes, that was what we wanted. We wanted something different. I was like, wow. Okay. And it just, it was very thick in the back after having this beautiful sleek feel. Then all of a sudden 
you had this, it, I mean, it looked like it just, it looked like something had just like been glued on to the back of it. And, and I think, you know, we can only hope that there's some refinement that goes on there because that wasn't okay. I wanted it to be okay. I wanted to like it. And from several angles, it looked fine, but the reality was it just, it wasn't okay. You know what I just realized that it kind of looks like is the uh, Rolls-Royce Wraith. Because the Wraith has these really big C-pillars, but but the Celestic, you know, it, the, it doesn't, it sweeps down, but it's got a little bit more upward curvature to it. It's a little more con- convex. Yeah, but there, the Wraith so it, doesn't. It's even more emphasis. I, I know what you mean about the Wraith, but the Wraith doesn't have that extra thing. It's like the Q7, I mean, it's the S7. The yeah. Audi S7 doesn't have that extra thing on the back windshield. That's the thing. It's right. Yeah. So, so the back wind, the back glass, there's like an extra thing as if to almost square it off. And, and the, the funny thing is that I absolutely love like the coupe SUVs, right? There's things that so many people hate and I get that, but I love them. And I said to her, you know, I said, I, I, it's, I I like those coupe SUVs and I, but she said, well, we wanted something lower, but the problem is that when you lower a vehicle and you don't change the proportions, those, the heaviness that, that becomes a muscular and athletic stance in an SUV just becomes heavy and ponderous in a sedan. And I think that's yeah. where they landed, unfortunately. Well, so the the Celestic is going to be hand built uh, in low volumes. They haven't said when it's coming out, and they, but they did confirm that it will not be shown next month with the uh, with the lyric. Uh, so we don't know when they're going to show this thing publicly. And based on the the response today, it's entirely possible that before it, we see this thing again. It may change significantly I, or not. We'll I, maybe not. And I, and I do have to apologize to her. Her name was Magalie DeBellis. So just, and she's okay. one of the chief designers under Michael Simcoe. Um, but no, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, to see what the next iteration is like, because I do think that the response today was underwhelming. Uh, that would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's, GM EV day, you know, um, you'll, we'll be seeing, you'll be seeing some of these vehicles coming out, uh, over the next few months and the rest of the year and into next year. Um, they, as I said, the, uh, the Lyric will get its debut on April 2nd, the Hummer SUT, the pickup will be on May 20th. Um, and they, they won't, the SUV will come later. They're not going to show the SUV at the same time. Right. Uh, but you'll be able to, figure out what the SUV looks like when you see the For sure. pickup. I think, you know, um, the only thing that I was disappointed with today was that they did not in any way, shape or form address marketing. And just even an overview of marketing. What is, what is their strategy to sell these products? And I just wanted a philosophy. I didn't want individual ad campaigns. I just wanted, I, I wanted them to, you know, they have, uh, Deborah's their new CMO. I just, I would have loved to have had her talk for five minutes, 10 minutes on how they're going to sell these things. 
Yeah, well, you know, we're we're still a good eighteen months away from the launch of the the Hummer next year, and and then the Lyric a few months after that. So, you know, my guess is that over the course of the rest of this year and well into next, we're going to get a an ongoing, you know, I know briefings from GM, and they'll they'll be talking more about that. I mean, we only had two hours today to right. go through all this stuff, um, so they clearly didn't have time to. To discuss that strategy and it's possible that they just haven't worked that out yet either i um, know but that's what kind of concerns me because <laughs> they're yeah. you know they're spending 20 billion dollars on this over the next few years you got to figure out who is the buyer it, you know and and they did a little bit but i just i you know my consumer marketing mindset would have liked to have seen a little bit of that and, and it, yeah and you know and, and i think we will you know I, I, I'm guessing that they have worked out some of that stuff and they're just not ready to talk to us about it yet. I know. Yeah. yeah. It was great. Though. Right. Fascinating. So thanks everybody. Uh, we'll be back next week um, with more stuff to talk about and um, hopefully we can figure out what your schedule is going to be, where, where you're going to be at uh, Rebecca. But until then um, I'm Sam of Burl Samet. And I'm Rebecca Linland from Rebecca Drives. And uh, don't forget to give us uh, your reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts and tell all your friends about the show and, and share it. And hope, you know, get more people listening. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Thanks Bye. so much. Thanks for listening to Wheel Bearings. Find us at wheelbearings.media and on Twitter as at wheelbearingscast. Remember, there's only one vowel. That's the A in cast. We're also at Car Review Tweets on Twitter. Or you could just email us. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.